Please turn with me to Mark chapter 6 this morning. We're going to read verses 30 through 44. If you were with us last week, I suspect the passage that we looked at seems a little bit like a an odd side note. You remember Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, and so he turns and begins to preach in other places. He sends out his disciples to preach repentance, and Mark says Herod began to hear about Jesus, and so we paused last week to look at Herod, who's a, a man whose heart was enslaved to his sin. Now, as we pick back up in verse 30, the disciples return from their journey and they come to tell Jesus all that they've done and taught. In fact, what Mark is doing is setting up a a contrast between two kings. And that is, if if Herod is a king who rules with an eye to self-centeredness, to debauchery of his own, King Jesus is a king who rules with an eye as a shepherd to his sheep with a heart of tenderness and compassion. And so we'll read... Verse 30 through 44, and I'll remind you that this is God's Word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot. From all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and Jesus had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy and buy something, buy themselves something to eat. And he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is God's word. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, we ask that you would now speak to us through your word. Even as we'll talk about this morning, you always enlist servants who are inadequate to the task, and I am one of those, a sinful crooked stick. I ask that you would point the narrow way to Christ Jesus through my words, but would you give each of us the ears to hear what you would say to your people and send forth your spirit that your word would not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If he were to arrive later than he'd planned, he'd say, hey, sorry, Eric, I had a few things to tend to. When the air conditioning at the church manse went out, he said, Eric, don't worry about it. We'll tend to it. If we had to cut our conversation short, he'd say, Eric, I, I need to run. I have a few things to 
tend to. And he was a man who served in the church that we pastored in Mississippi. And I can't think about him without thinking of that little phrase. He would always say, I, I've got some things to, to tend to. You may not use that particular phrase in your own life, but I'm sure you have things that you need to, to tend to in much the same way that he did. If it's important, you'll put it on your to-do list, and when you get to it, you'll tend to it. That's actually the same word which is used in the Bible of the Lord as a shepherd who tends to his sheep. And though it is the same word, it's actually very different in meaning. How different is it? On my 29th birthday, Susan gave me a, a, a picture, and it was framed with a, a photo of my first daughter's hand reaching out, grabbing hold of my finger. It was taken when she was one month old. And then in the frame beneath the picture, Susan had cut the stanza, the third stanza of the hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. The lyrics are these, Father-like he tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us and rescues us from all our foes. I love that little picture. I really love that point because as a first-time dad, I wasn't going to to tend to my family the way you tend to your to-do list. I wanted to care for them. The same way Jesus doesn't get out of the boat and say, I guess I got to tend to this mess, this to-do list. No, he, he looks at them and he wants to care for them. He's not task-oriented. His heart is not disconnected. He's not just busy with things going on in his life. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to think, well, he is. And so I, I've got to probably pray in just the right way or, or beg him to hear me or pray really hard and repeat myself. And then eventually, maybe if he gets a chance, if he's not annoyed, he'll tend to me. Mark says, no, it's actually nothing like that at all. Christ tends his flock with compassion. And so we're going to break down what is really a, a very familiar text to many of you with three points this morning. Revelation as rest, inadequate servants, and then shepherd as supper. We'll start with revelation as rest. They had just completed what was really their first mission trip. They were out as ambassadors for Jesus. They preached, they cast out demons, they healed. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You wonder if they were not excited. Weren't they even a little bit amazed or surprised that the, that the power of Christ was actually working through their own hands? I suspect it was all of that. And Jesus also sees when he looks at them that they're tired now, if scholars are correct, the disciples have probably been gone two to three months. It's a long time to be away from Jesus, to be out on their own, and it's nearing the time of Passover. And so he invites them to come with him, verse 31, to a desolate place and rest a while. While Jesus walked on the face of the earth, all the gospel writers give you this sense 
that this is just the pace of ministry for Jesus. There's so many people, there's so much need that Jesus and his disciples had, verse 31, no leisure time even to eat. You think you're busy. I think I'm busy. Jesus can't get a bite. And so they go and they get in the boat. In order to get away from everyone, verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Verse 31 and 32, he keeps repeating this phrase, desolate place. It's the same word for wilderness. And if you have been with us when we started Mark, you saw this all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 45. Jesus is overwhelmed by the crowds. He's unable to enter the town. And so he goes out and he ministers in the wilderness. But look, it's not just Jesus. In fact, what Mark's doing is setting up a a concept which should be really familiar to people who read the Bible. It's a theme. It goes all the way back to Exodus. That God was going to, to feed and shepherd and care for his people while they lived in the wilderness. That's why he raised up his servant Moses to give them rest through this man in a dry, parched land. So here's the greater Moses. Here's the Christ who takes his, his, his people into the wilderness to rest. And you are like me, I'm sure, Nothing about the wilderness sounds like it's a place of rest. If his disciples miss the image, Mark says, I don't want you to miss it. This is the Lord. This is the the one who specializes in giving rest to his people in the wilderness. Can only imagine how they felt. If you're an introvert, you can really imagine how they felt as the boat starts coming up to shore and they see people up on the hillside nearby, crowds on these high banks, and these people are running down to meet the boat as it pulls up, all with this promise of of rest. What should they expect Jesus to do? He told us to get in a boat. He told us to go with him to the wilderness to get some rest. If he really wants to give us rest, he'll climb out of the boat. He'll wave his hands. Hey, y'all, we've done some really good work. We're all tired. We just need a few days off. Could y'all come back on Thursday? It's not hard, is it, to find your place in the disciples' minds? You ever feel disappointed? that the promises of God are not happening as you expected them. Some of you may be here with that feeling today. You look at the circumstances and you would be asking along with the disciples, where's the peace? Where's the, the comfort you told me about? Where's the wisdom? Where's the strength that you promised? Where's the rest that you told me about? Jesus. It's a really valid question. But it's valid because you and I are so much like them. That is, when Jesus makes a promise, it is so easy for us to jump to conclusions on what a fulfilled promise should look like. Jesus promised them rest for these 12. And so they think, look, it's going to be a camping trip on the north shore. And if you're like me, you probably do the exact same thing with prayer. You pray for something, and then your mind, as you pray, you set the parameters about what a sufficient answer from the Lord would look like. Lord, if you would answer me with option A, well, that would be barely sufficient. I mean, I could, I could see if you did it that way that you would think you answered my prayers. 
But if you answered me with option B, it would be, it would be decent. I wouldn't be upset. I, I would be slightly disappointed, not upset. But if you really love me, you will answer my prayer like option C. And like the disciples, we easily and deeply set our expectations on option C. Do you see why you are disappointed by God's promises? Or even frustrated in your prayers? You presume that you are the one who has the perfect answer and that God must comply. And in that thought, it is easy to forget that you're actually speaking to and trusting a God who promises to care for and tend your heart with perfect wisdom. What are you doing? You're grabbing hold of his almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful hand, and you're grabbing for the right to be God. And so the boat pulls up, and they're thinking, rest. And Jesus said, rest. In verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. The disciples were were completely set on time away, and Jesus is set on fulfilling Old Testament promises of God. They're thinking short-term. He's thinking the whole grand story. It's a biblical theme. God promised rest for his people in the wilderness. I can't tell you all the places. I'm going to give you some. Deuteronomy 3.20, Deuteronomy 12.9, Deuteronomy 25.19, Joshua 1.13 and 15. Joshua 21, 44, Psalm 95, Isaiah 63, Jeremiah 31. My point is it's a huge biblical theme. Walking through this world, walking through this life really is a desert at times. And Jesus actually expects that you would feel in moments that this is a wilderness. And so that theme is certainly in his mind as the boat comes to shore. But there's another theme in his mind as well. Moses, before he was about to die, Numbers 27, 17, prayed, Lord, would you provide after I go a shepherd to care and lead and teach your people? The prophet Ezekiel speaks at a time when the, when the teachers and the, the priests do nothing to teach God's people. And we read about this passage. They should have been taught They had no one to guide them. And in Ezekiel's day, he promised, God's actually going to provide you with a finally faithful, compassionate shepherd who would establish a covenant of peace. And so as the boat pulls up and the the crowd, all those robes that are probably white up against green grass, Jesus thinks to himself, that's actually why I'm here to spiritually feed God's people. And you might say, well, isn't he really here to save these people from their sins? Yes. But they're so lost, they do not even know that they have sins nor need to be saved from them. And so the priests and the teachers of the law have failed to prepare the way because they failed to feed the people on God's word. And if you thought that King Herod was a random side note, it was Herod's job from the government, care for these people in this region. 
And he throws banquets for powerful people, and he kills one of God's true shepherds, John the Baptist. Herod indulges himself, and he ignores the sheep. What's Mark saying? He's saying, look, hey, here's the Christ, the long-awaited giver of God's eternal rest, the long-awaited shepherd of, of God's sheep, who is actually just as tired as everybody else, but he's the only one in the story who's willing to deny himself for the good of those precious sheep. And so from a heart of compassion, he sees his people and they are lost and scared and confused. And what does Mark say? He began to teach them many things. Jesus is revealing his identity and his his glory and his goodness, but he's also doing two other things He shows himself to be the long-awaited shepherd of the sheep, the one who really does give spiritual rest. But he's also teaching his disciples what it means to be a shepherd of God's people. Going into ministry is kind of popular in a college town. You need to realize Jesus is actually turning to these 12 guys and he goes, y'all want to go into ministry? It doesn't start with you doing great things for me. It starts with you finding your rest in me and then learning to turn and tend my sheep with the kind of compassion that I have towards them. It's it's actually revelation as rest. Jesus reveals himself as a compassionate Christ so that his sheep will learn to find rest in him. What's he doing? God's just showing forth the character of himself in the person of Christ in order that y'all would find something more sustainable than a camping trip on the North Shore. Your expectations of rest and mine probably ought to be informed by this passage. Because if they're not, then only a few of you are actually ever going to get rest in this life. What I mean is that only the really wealthy among you who have the, the means to travel to take big vacations and have no responsibilities. You can't have responsibilities when you come back or else it'll never be a vacation. But what does Jesus see in the crowds? He sees actual souls that are desperate for rest. People who are grieved by everyday losses, worried by everyday events, enslaved to everyday idols, beaten down by everyday frustrations. And he sees a crowd of people who are desperate, just like you are desperate. And instead of saying, I'll tell you what, guys, let let me put a Band-Aid on that gaping wound. Let's plan a trip to Turks and Caicos. He says, now, it would actually be better if you would look and see me as the person, as the the place of the deepest rest for your soul. In fact, it's just a different kind of rest. So if you feel disappointed by God today, if you have grown weary waiting for him to fulfill a promise that you read about or a prayer that you've prayed, maybe it's helpful to see this. Quite often, the rest that God gives for his people His disciples is not a vacation so much as it is a fresh, clear revelation of who he is, his character and his power. And so whether you are dealing with loss or anxieties, guilt and shame, uncertainty, what would it mean for you today to know that Jesus looks at you with a heart of compassion? 
that he is ready and willing to be your shepherd, that he intends to show you more of his goodness. It's called the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. But it actually starts with Jesus being a good shepherd who, who feeds his people spiritually. Christ tends his flock with compassion. So we start with revelation at rest. Now let's look at inadequate servants. It's this whole interplay between verse 35 and 38. He's taught all day long. The disciples approach Jesus with really a, a looming problem. Verse 35, it's a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something, buy themselves something to eat. And it, and it really does to us seem like a reasonable suggestion. The evening meal is coming. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Now, granted, there is a problem. There's not a town anywhere close that's capable of accommodating a crowd this size. But in their mind, well... That's not really our problem. Which is why Jesus chooses to use this as a teaching moment. Verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. The original language in the, in the Greek doesn't have the ability to, to put an emphasis by, by virtue of... Um, I lost the word. Um, not pronunciation. Punctuation. Thanks. I didn't sleep well last night. It doesn't, it doesn't use punctuation is my point. You can't underline a word and show this is the emphasis. But they can place words in particular order in order to show that emphasis. This is what the emphasis is. You. In other words, Jesus takes his index finger and he points at the 12 and he says, y'all feed them. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, I told you that Peter was Mark's primary source, which is why the story, if you can see it, is being told as if our eyes are still looking at the disciples. Only Mark tells us about this conversation between the disciples and Jesus. If you've got your Bible still open, skip over to verse 52. After Jesus walked on water, we hope to cover that next week. Mark says, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Peter says, we didn't get that at all. We didn't understand in the moment. There, this wasn't really about bread. It was about spiritually feeding God's people. When did this become clear to Peter? Probably after the resurrection. He's having a particular fish breakfast, John chapter 21, when Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you feed my sheep three times it wasn't actually so much about making bread for a hungry crowd and yet it is an impossible task right that's the way most of us read this passage well that was really neat I mean Jesus could feed a lot of people no he's teaching his disciples three points number one when I am gone, your first job is to feed the flock spiritually. What did the compassionate heart of Christ do when he saw the crowd and, and noticed that they were like sheep without a shepherd? Verse 34, he taught them many things. That is, he fed them spiritually. And so when he turns and he puts his index finger in the collective chest of the 12, he's saying, you may not look at this crowd and think that their needs are your problem, but if you're going to be my apostles, if you're going to be the ones who are sent to plant churches around the world, you must learn to feed my sheep on spiritual food, which is my word. It's not about the bread. As I say, the disciples don't get it in the moment. 
which is why they respond with such sarcasm. Look at verse 37. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Should we, should we uh, try to dig in the money bag and see if we've got a, a year's worth of wages? And yet through the sarcasm, the point is clear that, that these men have no resources on their own to feed the crowd, which takes us to the, the second lesson. Jesus is saying, you are not up to this task on your own. You don't have the food that my sheep need without me. Can't help but wonder if there's not a, a connection between the ministry success that they enjoyed on their mission trip around Judea and the impossible task of feeding this crowd from their own resources. Is there any chance at all that out there on the mission field, they began to be proud of the work that they had done for Jesus? You think any of them had the passing thought, man, Jesus, you are lucky to have me on your team. Wouldn't it be easy to confuse God's power with their own efforts? To take some sort of pride in what they had to offer the Lord? And so he gives them an impossible task with no resources so that they will be forced to say, yeah, we really are inadequate servants. Which brings me to the third point that Jesus was making for his disciples that day. He says, to nourish and fill my people on my word, it's going to take a miracle of my doing. See, he's training his disciples to tend God's flock in circumstances that are utterly impossible. Which is why he continues to turn it back and put the responsibility on them. Verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two. And so Jesus says, well, bring me your five loaves and your two fish and watch me do something powerful with your meager resources. Do you know why this matters at Christ Pres? Jesus can feed a lot of people. That's cool. Jesus is saying, my heart is moved over this issue. And that is unless my shepherds feed my flock on my word, empowered by my spirit, my people really will wander like lost sheep. Which is why this becomes a pattern for the church and for those who would shepherd God's flock until he returns. You see, don't you, that Jesus insists on feeding his sheep in impossible circumstances with flawed shepherds so that you and I would always know that whatever spiritual growth there is, it's his doing. And it is always the temptation of the church or human ministries to engage in certain projects and movements that we already feel powerful enough to accomplish. So people are really good at politics. Therefore, the church jumps into politics. People are always very good at entertainment. Therefore, the church begins to jump into that sphere as well. Social, social causes. Oh man, we can, we can do that. And the fact is, wherever you see the church engaged in activities that normal human beings can accomplish, it's because that's the realm where human beings feel comfortable. But those are not the things which move the compassionate heart of Jesus for his people. And if the church moves in those directions, the church is on the wrong path. 
And it was a problem in the Old Testament, which is what Ezekiel's crying out for. It's a problem in Jesus' day. It's actually a problem throughout church history. That when churches fail to preach God's word, they fail to feed God's sheep. And that breaks his heart. Look, friends, Jesus does not look at the crowd with anger because they're like sheep without a shepherd, as if they're lost. He would look at all of those who presume and proclaim themselves to be preachers and teachers. And he would say, you know, sheep actually don't need counseling from the pulpit. They don't need 10 steps to a happy new year. They don't actually need a month of movies and discussions and how cool that might be. They actually need God's word empowered by God's spirit. That's actually how Christ tends his flock with compassion. Revelation is rest, inadequate servants. Finally, shepherd as supper. Verse 39 says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups in the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. What color was the grass, Mark? Oh, it was, it was green. That's another little touch. Of course, it's an evidence that this really was an estimony, a testimony of an eyewitness who's Peter. But you can't help but wonder if Peter and Mark don't also include this little detail as a reminder of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green grass. Peter would say, well, it was actually only after the fact that we realize that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one that the Bible anticipates. But notice, the good shepherd intends to become the supper. It's not clear in the moment, but they are moving towards the Passover. Not the Passover where Jesus is betrayed. That's coming later. Look at verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. You see, it certainly is a meal which looks backward. This is the same God who provided manna for his people in the wilderness. And here is Jesus who feeds them on a new bread. But Jesus is also pointing forward. You notice that little phrase, he blessed and he broke. This is not the Passover meal of Jesus' betrayal. He's still a little further out but he's looking forward. In fact, he's anticipating a night in which he is betrayed where he will use those exact same words and Mark picks them up. Mark 14, 22. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for his disciples and for his church, we are told that Jesus blessed the bread and broke it. Are these incidental details? Unrelated? I don't think so. And so you see the issue of this miracle is not that Jesus is capable of of turning five loaves and two fish into food for 5,000, 15,000, 20,000 people. The real issue is that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. The one who fed his people on manna in the wilderness is this same Jesus who came to become the supper. And that is the real spiritual food which nourishes your soul and leads to salvation. 
do you think I wished today was a Lord's Supper Sunday? Of course I did. We'll be there next week. You can remember it. But if you ever doubt the compassion, if you ever doubt the tenderness of Christ to shepherd and guide you, if you ever doubt that this is a a shepherd who could take you into the wilderness land, you must remember this, that God blessed his son and broke him on the cross so that you would not wander like a lost sheep, that you would learn to walk trustingly with your shepherd, King Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a beautiful picture of the heart of Christ. I pray that you would warm those cold places of our hearts through the help of your word and the ministry of your spirit. I pray that you would draw us near to you and comfort those who are afflicted uh, and afflict those who are too overly comfortable. Let us see the Lord Jesus and trust in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.